private moment made public. A minute ago, Gina asked me, where are you preaching from tonight? I said, Genesis 6. She said, again? But then she told me she was just joking. I'm going to go with that last part. So you know you need to turn to Genesis 6. Although not bragging or anything, but we are in verse 6. So it's not like we're just stuck. So I, I do want to read verse 1 through 5, and then we'll look at verse 6. Now it came about when, the, when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them. And the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. And then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And that brings us to verse 6, where we really do probe into the, the nature and the person of God, as you'll see as we go through this, just from looking at this verse. Verse 6 The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The word sorry in the New American Standard and the New King James, that's the way it translates that particular Hebrew word. The ESV, the KJV, And the NIV, this side of 1984, translated repent. The NIV, if you have a version prior to 1984, it did not translate it that way. It said grieved. So what, what we're looking at is something about the nature of God and prayerfully by expounding this verse and the concept, you're going to know more about God, his person, his being. You should have already learned quite a bit, but again, I remind you, when we get through this next section on verse 6 and 7, I will give you some principles to draw from this uh, passage that kind of guide you through Scripture. So, you have some of the translations that God repented, but you have the NAS, the New King James, and then 
similarly, in the old NIV, you have that he was sorry. And I believe that sorry is a better translation of the word in the context. And I'll show you some things how that comes about. So <clears throat> he's expressing his grief and his sorrow and what he had made in the garden, the perfect man and woman in the perfect environment was shattered in every way imaginable. And so he's expressing <clears throat> his sorrow and grief. So when you translate the word repent, you run into a problem because other scriptures say that God cannot repent. <clears throat> and if you remember, we talked about repentance, a change of mind and a change of behavior. So that's the way man repents. He changes his mind and he changes his behavior. He repented and believed in Christ. He didn't believe in Christ and now he follows him. See, the repentance and faith or belief go together. <clears throat> but God doesn't repent. God doesn't change his mind. God doesn't change his direction. Because all of that implies that you learn something, that you realize something, that something came about you didn't know about, and you changed, you see. But God knows everything. So nothing ever occurred to God. He never had a new thought. He doesn't learn <clears throat> in the way that we learn. He doesn't learn. He knows. So repenting is not something that God does, nor can he do as deity who is all-knowing. So I want to take a few minutes and look at these verses, and then we'll also look at the word grief, and I, I'll try to show you something that really shows how important this is to see uh, that he's grieving. <clears throat> because we're talking about the nature of God, remember, it, it at times might go a little deep. So right now it's not, but at times it will, but it'll be important to get that as well. So look at Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. So just go right in your Bible a little bit. <clears throat> 23:19 So numbers 23:19 says God is not a man that he should lie nor a son of man that he should repent some of your translations may say change his mind, same thing. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Meaning that God doesn't change his mind, not only is against his nature as deity and knowing everything, but all of the promises in Scripture 
that he promises he'll do, if he changes his mind, then he might not do them. So everything we bank on, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, God may change his mind. He just didn't tell us about it. So everything depends on a God who doesn't change his mind. So again, deity wouldn't do it by nature, but we have a personal thing. We don't want, them cha- we don't want God changing his mind when he's promised one thing and then he doesn't fulfill it. And that's what's important about him fulfilling all of the promises that he's made. He's fulfilled them literally, and those that need to be fulfilled, he will do them likewise. Look in 1 Samuel. Again, go write some. And verse, or chapter 15. So this is about God taking the kingdom from Saul and giving it to David. Well, that's kind of the background that's going on here. So 1 Samuel chapter 15, and of course Samuel's involved in verse uh, chapter chapter 15, verse 27. And Samuel turned to go, and Saul seized the edge of his robe, and he tore it. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. And that's David. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. And so you can go into Psalms 110 in many places, and you, what you see is God does not repent. God does not change his mind. So when you're looking at verse 6 in Genesis 6, it is better to translate it sorry, which corresponds, as you'll see, to the word grief. It grieved him. So there is sorrow, but he's not changing his mind. He didn't learn that, that all of the wickedness that would go on at this time, he didn't learn about it and then go, I shouldn't have created them. That's not what happened. So the idea of sorry is better and it corresponds to grief. And what he's sorry about is that man did not first use the freedom that God gave him in the garden in the right way. So he's sorry. He knew man would do that, but man didn't have to, and man could have enjoyed God's presence without sin. So it sorrows God that Adam and Eve made a bad choice and ended up in sin and all of the corruption that came with it. And now looking at this event, it sorrows God. God's not some stoic, cosmic killjoy. It sorrows him. He gave man and woman the best, the perfect. And it sorrowed him when, he, when they misused the good free will. Free will is a good gift, but they misused it, and that is the bad And so now it's gone so far that he sorrows 
that he must destroy his creation to save his creation. So imagine what God has done and seen. The Garden of Eden, which was pristine perfection, everything they could have wanted. And now he's at the point that he must destroy his creation to save it. Now, there was a day when God created man and woman and every thought was perfect and every thought was holy and every thought was joyful and now every thought is evil. There was a day that God knows about that man and woman, every intent of their heart was to do good, to do righteous, to do holy, to be kind, to love. And now every intent of their offspring is to do evil and to kill and destroy and to rebel. I, sometimes I, I used to have a hard time. I don't so much anymore uh, because of what I'm going to share. But So I've watched uh, serial killers, you know, when they do a, uh, an expose on them and so forth. And... Um, so they've done, the, the first one I remember watching was Jeffrey Dahmer, who, who killed people and ate them. And just, it, it's just the grossest thing an individual could do. We can't even hardly comprehend it. And so they're describing this thing, and a, a, a couple of things stand out. Number one, the neighbors say, no, he was kind of quiet, you know, he, but he's nice. And workers, you know, say things similar to that. But what really broke my heart was that they would, they look at the mom and they ask the mom sometimes, so here's this person, 25, 30 years old, doing all these things we can't even comprehend. And the mom will say something like, well, he was a very cute little boy and very sweet. And you just think, what are you talking about? But you know what? That's what she remembers. So she, what she sees is this grown adult doing things that they were taught not to do. Everything was to teach them the other way. And they're doing things that this mom brokenheartedly cannot comprehend that her child is doing it. You know why? Because she remembers him riding a tricycle and smiling wearing a cowboy hat that didn't fit, shooting cap guns. She remembers when it wasn't this way. Well, I mean, God knows everything, so I just use that as kind of an analogy to get us to grasp that God is sorrow, sorrowful to see his creation, what it has done, and now to save the creation he must destroy it. So I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 66, and I want to show you how this same Hebrew word is used at times, and it's used to comfort, to comfort, uh, to have sorrow as it is translated in Genesis 6. And by the way, if I forget, don't 
just put your ribbon or something, stay there in Isaiah, because we'll come back in a moment to something. But Isaiah chapter 66, verse 13, joy in Jerusalem's future, God is going to bless and take care of them. And it says in verse 13, so verse 12, for thus saith the Lord, behold, I extend peace to her like a river, and it goes on in verse 13, and as one whom his mother comforts. The word comfort is the same word in Genesis 6, translated sorrow, sorry, or repent. So I will comfort you, same word, and you will be comforted in Jerusalem. So it's the word comfort. You see the tenderness of it? The mother comforting the child. God says, that's the way I'm going to do you, Jerusalem. I'm going to comfort you. If you will, look in uh, Judges chapter 21. Now you have to go back left in your Bible. Judges chapter 21. And while you're turning, I would just say in Deuteronomy 32, 36, we won't look it up, but it, there it's compassion on Israel. But the context of what you're reading in, in Judges is that uh, a horrible sin had been committed and the Benjaminites uh, were at least somewhat complicit in, in uh, endorsing it in some sense. And so there was a war uh, with the Benjamites, and about 25,000 plus of their men were killed in that war. And because of the evil that the Benjamite, Benjamites had been involved in, the rest of the Jews made a pact that they would not give their daughters to marry a man of that tribe. But after the war, only 600 survived. So now Israel had another problem. They had made this oath to God, which they had to keep, that they would not give their daughters to the tribe of Benjamin because of this evil they had been a part in. So they went to war against them. And now only 600 men survived, so they were in danger of becoming extinct. So Israel's faced with this problem. What do we do? We made a pact we wouldn't give our daughters, but we might lose a tribe. So that's the context. Verse 6 of Judges 21. And the sons of Israel, Israel were sorry. That is it. Sorry for their brother Benjamin. And said, one tribe is cut off from Israel today. So you can actually see the sorrow in the words. We're sorry for Benjamin because it was a war. They lost so many men. And now they can't have enough to marry because they can't marry foreigners. And we've made a vow not to give them our daughters, you see. If you go to verse 15, and the people were sorry for Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. So they were sorry for him. So we are sorry that our child did that. We never wanted that. 
We're, we're sorry that you were hurt that way. We're sorry you had to go through that. And so then you also find that term of comforting. So I think sorry is the better way between repent and sorry uh, in verse 6 of chapter 6 of Genesis. And I do think it's the best translation that I know of. So you have to think about God is looking at his creation, as we described a minute ago, from pristine environment and everything good to now everything evil and everything bad and everything must be destroyed. Instead of living in a utopia that they were in in the garden, Mankind has now catapulted himself by his own sin into a dystopia. So here's some things about God. God loves his creation. He loves his creation. Verse John 4, 8, verse 16, God is love. So is God holy with his creation? Yes. Can he be unholy? No. Because he is holy. He doesn't just act holy, he is holy. The same is true with love. God is love. He cannot be unloving. God could have chosen not to create mankind. Nothing forced him. He freely chose to do that. And he could have chosen not to create anything, and he would have been perfectly content forever. He did not need us. We didn't meet a void in his life. But once God chose to create man, mankind, he would love him because he is love. So you see the difference? God could have chosen not to create he was not bound to create and love because he didn't have to create. But once he created, by his nature, he loves. There's another factor in this that you may not have thought about. That mankind, we've said, is a, a unique property that only the human race has. The angels don't have it. The animals don't have it. And that is that we're created in the image of God. Genesis 1, 26 through 28. So... If you've never heard this, it may sound a little odd. But God loves himself supremely. Because he is perfect in every way, and he expresses perfect love. And so God loves himself, not in a narcissistic way, but God who he is cannot forgive the two negatives, cannot not love himself. So he's perfect love, and he loves himself, and then he loves others because he is love. But God loves us, so he offers redemption from sin, but he also loves himself, and because he loves himself, he will seek to redeem mankind because we are created in the image of God.
That is an assurance on top of everything else that God is about redeeming human beings because we're created in his image and he loves himself. And therefore, he will love us on that level and he will love us also that he is love. So God loves his creation. And therefore, he desires for them to enjoy everything that he started with. Second thing I would mention is God cannot tolerate sin. God has to judge sin. He is also holy. So when he loves us and we violate that and violate it and violate it, there comes a point when he has to judge sin. He is patient. He is long-suffering. But there comes a time that sin has to be judged. And that's what you see here, that you've come to that time when sin has to be judged here, it had to be judged in the garden, and one day it will be, it's been judged many times along the way, but one day, one day it'll be judged forever. But God is patient, and so he goes beyond, beyond to give people a chance to be redeemed. Why? Because he loves his creation. But why does it ever end? Because he's holy, you see. So the nature of God is very present in this passage, these verse 1 through 7. He is patient, he is patient. He has let them go to the point where every intent, every thought, every action was totally evil and all of the human race was corrupted but eight people you talk about patience if I were God I'd have wiped you all into oblivion the first week probably But you understand the patience of God. It's way beyond what we can comprehend. And we like to talk about how God loves the world and he loves her and we love people in Africa and we love people in Venezuela, but we don't know them. The question is, do we love the people we know? So God knows us perfectly. He knows everything we ever would do, will do, everything. And he still loves us. That's the kind of love that's agape. That's the kind that God has. So God loves his creation. So he's patient, but he's also holy. And he has to bring judgment. And in this case, if he didn't bring judgment, the whole human race would be annihilated. And his salvific plan would be thwarted. No one would be saved. You can do the same thing with eternity. You could never have eternity living in what God had desired for you to have unless all of sin was judged. So there has to be a point that his holiness steps in when love has been repudiated over and over. And that brings me to the third thing I want to say is God would not allow his redemption plan to be thwarted. That has to do with the goodness of God. The goodness of God. Yes, it has to do with sovereignty, but it's the goodness of God. So he loves his creation. He offers redemption for everyone. But he is holy. He will have to judge. But he will not let any adversary thwart 
is love and salvation for all. He will not let anyone. There may be somewhere, but I, I don't think there is. I think this is the, up until the book of Revelation, when you're in the tribulation, this is the place where the enemy got the greatest foothold in destroying the redemptive plan of God. Eight people left. Eight. It's hard to comprehend that the whole world, every person was continually evil and there were eight people who did not bow. In the tribulation, it'll be worse. And Jesus said then there'll be a time like it's never been before and it never shall be after. But this is the worst that I know of and you know in the Bible it chronicles many times of judgment, many times of vast sin, many empires. So the Babylonian Empire, the Assyrian, uh, the Roman Empire, the Grecian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Egyptian, and on and on. They're all evil. But it never got down to eight people that were still following God. So God overcame this sinful demonic plan of creating this hybrid race, this unredeemable race of half angel and half human. And God saved these eight through the ark. So just four things you see there. God loves his creation, creating his image. So he offers salvation. God cannot tolerate sin. God will not allow anything to destroy his redemptive plan. And God overcame this one through the judgment that he brought upon the earth. This is why the flood was so catastrophic. So a lot of time when you read about the flood and you think, well, yeah, but all these women and men and everybody, I mean, is everybody destroyed? Yeah. Because if you wouldn't, there wouldn't have been any salvific plan. Now, that wasn't going to happen. I don't mean to portray God as struggling to keep it and all. Not at all, but I just want you to know the severity of it from our vantage point or even from Satan's. I mean, he must have believed he was so close. So close. And he has tried again and again to come to that point. So now... Um, I want us to look at this PowerPoint by Dr. Ken Matthews, a Hebrew scholar that I've relied on some. And I'm just going to start walking through this. I won't get through with it tonight, but just to kind of think about uh, this event. And so this should be on the PowerPoint. <clears throat> but concerning God's grief, and that's in verse 6, that God was grieved. So we're looking at his grief. God's response of grief over the making of humanity, however, and this is what Matthew says, is not remorse in the sense of sorrow over a mistaken creation. Now stop right there. God is not grieving, saying, I just wish I wouldn't have created them. I, I wish I'd have, like we would do. So it's not grieving over his choice to create. That's not what's causing him grief. 
It is what man did with that. So his sorrow is not over his mistaken creation. And when you put repent in there, he repented, you know, that he made mankind. You see, you kind of see God as though he made a mistake, but he didn't. So it's not a grief over that. The second part of that I would note is our verse shows that God's pain has its source in the perversion of human sin. The making of man is no error. It is what man made of himself. That's the sorrow. That's the grief. And that is a very important distinction. That God's grief and sorrow is not over him deciding, he didn't decide, he always knew he would, to create. It is what man did with that. Again, you know, it's not an exact parallel. We have to be careful. But there are uh, analogies to a certain point between God and us in some things, what they call the communicable attributes, what theologian, theologians uh, call that. But it's like you have a child and you have four children and you raise them in the same home, you do the same thing, you do everything, and then one of them just, just goes bizarre. Well, it wasn't because you had children or adopted children. They made some choices in that. And it sorrows you. It grieves you. See? So that's the idea, but it's not over that he created or anything like that. So making a man was no error. What it is what man has made of himself. Your child grows up. Your sorrow's not over having the child. Your sorrow's over what the child has done with their life. They had, we heard people say, you know, they had every opportunity. They said so much to live for. There's so, and on and on. It's just really tragic. So it's similar. It goes on in that little phrase about the making of man is no error. It is what man made of himself. And then the next thing I would notice, uh, the third thing here is, by recurring reference to mankind, Adam, in verse 5 through 7, the passage focuses on the source of his grief. So you have, in verse 5 through 7, you have Adam, man, mentioned. And so what's happening is the source of God's grief is not in his creation. It's in what man did. And that brings his sorrow that man chose to do that, but he didn't have to. You had a child and they went the wrong way and you, you, you're asked, did they have to do that? No. No, they didn't have to, but they did do it. And then the, the next thing I would notice is it says, and God is grieving because... This sinful man is not the pristine mankind whom he has made to bear his image. So uh, humanly, the only way I can get there is the person looking at this adult who's 
you know, whatever, murdering people or robbing or brutalizing people in some way, and you're looking at that, and you, you can't, I mean, it's just unreal that they're doing that, and you remember them uh, playing in the sandbox, opening a Christmas present, eating with ice cream all over their face. Just these wonderful, wonderful, wonderful memories. Well, God's is even different because they were in a pristine environment. Everything you could ever ha want, but not only what you needed, it was pleasant to the sight. It was beautiful. So God didn't just make everything functional. I mean, if he, if he wanted to, he could have just made it all one color, dark brown. And it would have all worked. It just wouldn't have been enjoyable. And so God made it where it was just beautiful to the eyes and, and the taste of everything was wonderful and, and you didn't have to watch what you eat. That's what I'm guessing. Because if it was pleasing to sight and it all tastes good, it's going to be pretty hard to watch a diet. So maybe there was a way you could just eat and eat and eat and never gain weight. I don't know. But you understand what God's looking at. He's looking at what they had, what they could have had, and where they are, and he has to destroy them. Uh, the last thing I would give you just <clears throat> here is, the fourth thing is, the intensity of the pain is demonstrated by the use of Naham. Elsewhere in Genesis, where it describes mourning over the loss of a family member due to death. Noham. And um, so the death of a loved one is, is different than other kinds of sorrow. And if you've experienced it, you had a spouse tragically die or a child or your parent died or someone that you really loved and were really close and they die, you experience this grief comes upon you that it's you can't you can't explain it you try to people who have not had death that near to them but they really don't grasp it but when you get around someone else that's had that death that love death that close to them and they say yeah you, you let's say you lost a sibling they were 32 and this person said, yeah, uh, my brother died at 29. Neither one of you has to explain it. And you're both assured that each of you understands. It's just the weirdest thing. So sorrow is kind of that way, but death is another thing. <clears throat> and it comes on you, and you don't think, you don't know if you're going to survive it, meaning the hurt is so profound. It's so deep. And you can't think about next year. You're just trying to think about getting through the next day. And uh, some of the most emotional moments I've ever had in my life <clears throat> are when I preach a funeral and, I, and when I'm through preaching, I stand at the head of the casket and m most of the people will have left the uh, worship center and then the family comes by. 
and it can rip your heart out. So that's the kind of grief God's having. That's that word, naham. The grief of a loved one looking at a loved one who died. And it's a loss that's incomprehensible to us. And that's the word it uses for God, that he has that kind of grief over this. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we love you. Nothing like what you love us, but the love that we do have that honors you is that love. And Lord, we're, we know you're all powerful, you're all knowing, and, and we're so comforted by all of that, but God, there is a comfort in knowing how deeply you love your creation what you've been willing to do for your creation to come to know you and to live forever with you as you intended. And that when it's been the most evil, you didn't walk away. And we have evil times today and sometimes we look at it and we think it couldn't have been more evil than this, but it was. And so shall it be again. But your plan will not be thwarted, and we are now a part of your plan. And so we thank you for loving us, and we thank you for one day <clears throat> when your love has been totally spurned, you will bring judgment for sin. And that pristine environment will be forever, and we will be a part of it. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord, give you a great week.